<laughs> Hi, everybody. Um, a lot of people here tonight. A lot of people here tonight, and that's great. Um, I see we have the camp people here. Stick up a hand if you're from one of the camps, Miracle Ranch or Island Lake. Yeah. Okay, you guys just raised the decibel level a few levels. Uh, anyone here from, let, let's do the, let, let, let's just kind of find out more who, who's here. Anyone here who's a normally like a Thrive Kitsap person who's come out tonight? Okay, so we have a lot more Thrive Kitsap people than I'm used to seeing here. That's super cool. Um, I'm not even going to try to find out all the different churches you guys are from. I am going to do this though, and this might be a little bit outside of some people's comfort zone, but I'm just going to, I'm going to ask you to be brave. Uh, like stick up a hand if this is your first time at Thrive ever. Sweet. Okay, so we have like some brave people who are here for the first time. That's awesome. And now you're stuck with me. You, you see me almost every week, but uh, you're, you're stuck with me for the next little while. Um, but I'm, I'm really, really, again, just excited to come back to this book. We've been going through the book of Romans here at Thrive, and <clears throat> this book is probably the Bible's most comprehensive explanation of the gospel that there is. The gospel is the good news about Jesus, about who Jesus is, about what Jesus did. And as we get started tonight, you know, there are going to be some slides up on the screen. This first slide here, actually, I just wanted to put up the names uh, of some people that helped me as I prepared this message, just giving credit where credit is due. Uh, so those are some, some voices that were just really helpful as I was preparing today. And, um, you know, as we, as we dive in, <clears throat> I just want to say a little bit about, like, what this theme of gospel is all about. You might have noticed on that, that title slide that the tagline for this series is that the gospel changes everything. The gospel changes everything. The gospel is like a set of goggles. You know, so goggles are, you know, they, they help you see what's really real. You know, like, for example, if you're swimming underwater, you know, your eyes aren't adjusted to see underwater, you know, by, by the way, if you didn't notice that. And so that means if you want to see reality underwater, what do you need? You need a pair of swim goggles. Or if you've got bad vision, now I'm, I'm trying to not admit to myself that I think I actually do need to get my eyes checked because I can, I can barely even see what that big screen back there says. Uh, if you have bad vision, then you have, to ha you, you, you have to like have a special pair of goggles that we call glasses in order to see anything. Or, you know, on, on the other hand, maybe some of you guys have actually done that thing where you put on a pair of drunk driving goggles. You guys ever done this? Where you, they're like this wrong pair of goggles that actually distorts reality in order to simulate what it's like to drive drunk. So goggles allow you to see what's really real. And that same thing applies to spiritual reality. If you want to see what's really real spiritually, then you need gospel goggles. And that's why the tagline for the series is that the gospel changes everything. The gospel is not something that we need to hear once to become Christians. The gospel is what we need to hear every single day to continue as Christians. The gospel is not just the Christian ABCs, it's the A to Z. And that means that you never, ever graduate from the gospel. You don't just hear it once and move on. It's what you come back to every single day as a follower of Jesus. And if you approach the gospel that way, then what will happen is that it will change you. You know, the gospel is not just about information. It's about transformation. And it's going to bring not just superficial change. I mean, it will change what you believe and how you behave. I mean, things that are more visible to other people on the surface. But the gospel alone can bring deep change. It can change the very structure of your heart. It can change what you desire it can change what you live for. It can break addiction. It can break sin habits. 
It's going to change the very pattern of, of your mind so that you have a whole new grid, a whole new set of goggles for how you see reality, which is why C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun, not because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Here's an example. Some of you guys are in school right now, which means that you're studying things like philosophy or psychology or history or business or science. And did you know that when you're wearing gospel goggles, you'll see all of those subjects in a totally different way? We're called to think Christianly about science or business or history or philosophy or whatever it is you're thinking about or studying. There's some of you who are in the workplace. Did you know that wearing gospel goggles will totally change how you approach your job? It's going to affect your work ethic. It's going to affect your work-life balance. You might, like, take a Sabbath. It'll, it'll, it'll change how you treat your coworkers. The gospel changes everything. And what we're going to do tonight as we look at the second half of Romans chapter 2, is we're going to take the gospel and it's going to give us a set of gospel goggles to look at religion. What does the gospel have to say about the thing that we humans call religion? And here's, here's the roadmap that we're going to go with for tonight. The, the, the t- passage we're going to look at is going to tell us two things. First thing it's going to tell us, religious people need the gospel. Religious people need the gospel. And second thing, it's going to explain how religious people can get the gospel. So that religious people need it, and then how you can get it. So I'm going to read from the book of Romans, chapter 2, verses 17 to 29. I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to launch right in. So if you have a Bible, look at Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 17, and I'm going to read these verses. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew... If you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you were instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about your relationship, you who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who even though you have the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Lord, would you just bless this time that we spend tonight in Scripture? Um, Lord, your word is powerful, your word is truth, and your word has the power to change lives. Would you change us? Would you change us? In Jesus' name, amen. 
So the first thing that this passage is going to show us is that religious people need the gospel. And I've been intentional about, about that wording. You know, to be honest, I've actually, I've stolen that wording from someone else. But he was intentional about it. I'm intentional about stealing it. Point is, the phrase is religious people need the gospel. It's not like it's optional. And, and, you know, when, in saying that, in saying that religious people need something, what you're implying is, is that religion can't save you. The people who claim to be the most moral, and actually sometimes even are the most moral. So people like Confucius or Mother Teresa or the Buddha, that they're not good enough to be saved and need the gospel to rescue them. And that's one of Christianity's most shocking teachings. And yet it's all over the Bible. And even Jesus himself teaches this. So do you remember when Jesus says in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Where's Devante? Is Devante in here? Devante hates this passage. We, yeah, maybe hates too strong. I don't know that Devante hates anything in the Bible, but this is a shocking and scary passage because do you see what this is teaching? This is teaching that there are plenty of religious people who think that they are saved and are not. They think they're saved because they are religious. Just look at how religious these people are in this passage. So it says they're driving out demons. They're doing miracles. And Jesus says they're eternally lost. And what that means is that there are likely very many people who sit in churches every Sunday, who may even serve the homeless or visit the sick or clothe the naked, but they're eternally lost because according to the Bible and to Jesus himself, there are plenty of religious people who think they are saved and are not because religion is not enough to save. And by the way, in saying all of this and setting all of this up, I want to make a distinction here between like a religious person and then what you might call a gospel person. When you talk about a person who's a religious person, it's different than than talking about a, a person who's a gospel person, a person who knows that Jesus has died for them on the cross, that he was raised again, and that they don't just kind of live that way as though it's just head knowledge, but actually have had an actual relationship encounter with Jesus. Those are different things. I just want, I want to establish that. But the, the, the point, point of all this is that religion on its own, the kind of the human institution that we call religion, it's not enough to save. And this is actually the very point that our passage makes. And, and let me just show you a couple ways that Paul makes it. So first, zoom out here with me for a minute. And just remember where we are in this book. If you've been here, then you'll remember that what we've been saying is that this section that we're in from Romans 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20 is a section that's all about sin. It's a section that's explaining why humanity is so messed up. And it opens in chapter 1 by talking about the sin of pagan people or people who like don't have any kind of religious background. And it says, for example, that, like, that, that one of the reasons that, that pagans are in need of Jesus and, and, are, and are under sin is that, that there's things like idolatry or sexual sin or other things that they are guilty of. And Paul talks about that in chapter one. And he goes to this big long list. He says, they're full of every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. All of these different things to which the Jews, who were the main religious people of those to whom Paul was writing in that day, they would have heard all of that and they would have said a hearty, 
Amen. That's what those pagans are like. Of course, that's what those pagans are like. We've known that for a long time, Paul. And, you know, good, good, good riddance to them when God judges them. So chapter one shows that pagans need the gospel. But in verse 17, Paul does something completely shocking because he takes the very people that are pointing their fingers at all those, those non-Jewish people and Paul now addresses them. And for the very first time, he mentions religious people explicitly. So in verse 17, he says, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, what he's doing is he's lumping them, the religious people of his day. They're lumped into the sin section too. And he goes on to say that they're just as condemned as the pagan world, which they felt themselves so superior to. But why does he do this? You know, what, why does Paul lump these guys into the sin section? Well, if you read on, you know, so I'm, I'm not going to reread this again, but in verses 17 through 21, he kind of gives you the basic attitude that the religious people of his day had. And if you read through those characteristics, you notice that all of them, in some way or another, have this in common, that they all involve a confidence in religion and a contempt for irreligion. So, for example, look at like verses 18 through 20. And here, it's talking about how you know, God had given the Jews his law. These were his very specific instructions for how he wanted them to live. And because the Jews had the law, they thought that they were all on the right and all the pagan nations were in the wrong and they were in need of, of, of instruction which is why in these verses, the Jews think of themselves as, as teachers and as guides and as instructors. And they think of the pagans as, as infants, they call them, or, or blind or people who are sitting in the dark. Now, let me ask you a question. Which of those two sets of terms would you want applied to you? It seems pretty clear that, that one of these is a set of terms that's a bunch of praises. The other set's a bunch of insults. And how do you notice what's going on here? I mean, on the one hand, it's true that the Jews did have God's law. God did give them extra information about who he was. But do you notice what the religious people are doing in this passage? They are calling themselves superior, and they're calling pagan people inferior. And do you know another way that you can put that is that the religious people are condemning others and excusing themselves. They're justifying themselves. They're guilty of the exact same behavior of self-justification that we talked about last week from the very first half of this chapter. And in fact, if you want to see this, you can take the very first verse of chapter 2 and you can overlay it here with what Paul is saying about the religious people, the Jews, and it lines up perfectly. So remember last week, chapter 2, verse 1, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. And we talked last week about how what this means is, is that it's not simply that we don't keep God's standards, but that we don't even keep our own standards. That every time we look at someone else and we say, man, you know, you really shouldn't have cut me off on the road, but then we do that same thing to someone else. Or every time we say, man, you know, you really shouldn't have cheated on your taxes and then you do the same thing. Paul's point is that, that we don't even keep our own standards. No one would want to be their own prosecuting attorney on judgment day because we don't even keep our own standards. And so Paul is saying that the very attitude that he was, we were talking about last week is the very attitude that the religious people in this chapter are guilty of. And of course, anyone can judge others. Anyone can justify themselves. But what Paul is saying is that the drive to judge and to self-justify is especially true of religious people. 
And that includes Christians. If chapter one is all about how pagans need the gospel, then chapter two is all about how religious people need the gospel. And that includes us. So there's the fact stated. And he lumps all, even, you know, even the religious people into the sin section. He's showing them why even, you know, even they need the gospel. But now the question is, well, why? You know, what is it exactly that, that makes Paul say that they need the gospel? And of course, one reason is that, you know, that, like we just said, they're, they're liable to that same kind of like self-justification, uh, that same kind of sinful judgmentalism that we talked about last week. But there are a couple of other reasons that I want to point out to you here. And the first reason is that according to what Paul says, religious people place their confidence in moralism. Religious people place their confidence in moralism. So, their mentality was is that because they had all of these religious privileges and all of these, you know, and, and because they had done all these religious duties, that it made them good enough for God. One example, just look at verse 17. In verse 17, Paul says that one of the characteristics of many of the Jews is that they rely on the law. Now, the word rely if in, in the original, it means it's kind of something like, like you know, to find your well-being or, or your inner security in something. So the picture here is that, that these are people who are putting their trust in the fact that they knew and had studied God's word and that they weren't simply trust, they weren't trusting in God, but instead they're trusting in their own religious knowledge. Now, what he's not saying here is that the law is wrong and knowing God's word isn't wrong. We should know God's word. And it's not that morality is wrong, but moralism is wrong. Moralism is to put your trust in your own goodness or in your own religiousness. And moralism is the religion of comparison. It's the religion that says, I'm a whole lot better than all of those other people. Man, if there's a God, then he would accept a good person like me. And Christians are just as prone to this as the Jews in Paul's day. Let me, let me ask, you know, how, how would you know if, as a Christian, you're falling into moralism? Uh, one author that I've read puts it like this. It says that whenever we brag about something we have done, when we rely on our own action, profession, or identity, we are living as functional moralists. And then it gets worse. <laughs> to get the point across, he suggests that all you got to do is you got to paraphrase these verses by simply substituting the word Christian for Jew. Well, let me read you this paraphrase. You call yourself a born-again Christian, and you are sure you are right with God because you signed a commitment card or walked down an aisle or prayed a prayer, and you really cried that night. You remember you had strong feelings for God, so you must have been converted that night. And hey, since then you have memorized dozens of scripture verses, and you know the right answer to a large array of questions, and you've led other people to make a commitment to Christ in the Bible study you lead. And that's just the beginning. I mean, you could add a ton of things to this list. I mean, you memorize dozens of scripture verses, you minister to the homeless, you've gone to Bible college, you're a leader at Thrive, you've suffered for Christ more than other people have, you know, you're going to go off and be a missionary. Anytime, it doesn't matter what it is, anytime you brag about those things or trust in those things, that's the rut of moralism. What Paul is saying is that the reason religious people need the gospel is that they're putting their confidence in their good works. They're putting their confidence in moralism. And here's the irony. The irony is not just that supposed moral people come across as stuck-up jerks, but it's that supposedly moral people never practice what they preach. 
And that's the second reason that religious people need the gospel. It's the point that he makes in verse 21. And in verse 21, he says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? His point here is that religious people spend a lot of time telling others what to do, and they don't even live that way themselves. So he says, you who preach against stealing, you know, what about you? Do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? And man, what's so crazy about this and what's so convicting is that when you read this passage through the lens of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, then you realize that every single one of us fits into this. I mean, it's possible that you might read this and say, well, you know, I, I, I feel like pretty sure of myself going around telling people that they shouldn't commit adultery, but man, pff, I'm not even married. How could I even possibly commit adultery? Jesus said, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus raises the level of the law from simply kind of the outward external things to the inward heart things. And so every single one of us can find ourselves in this. And um, this is kind of funny. This happened to me just this week. Uh, okay, preacher's confessions for public consumption. So this, this, this last week, um, Amanda and I were in Portland for a church conference. And we left a day early to visit um, our friends Mac and Ashley, which a lot of you guys know Mac and Ashley. Mac has preached here and they were part of Thrive. And, and, and they're both down at, uh, in Portland studying theology at Multnomah University. And uh, we're, we're down there visiting Multnomah and we find out that Mac is doing Thrive Proud because uh, he's one of five finalists competing in this Bible trivia scholarship competition. And so we go and we watch this competition and um, it was cool because they invited the audience to participate. So anytime the contestants um, didn't get the question right, they would open it up to the audience. And so on several occasions, there were a number of times where I was like getting really excited and pumped and into it. And so, so I'm like, I'm one of the few voices from the crowd that's like shouting out some of these, these right answers. To the point where afterward, <laughs> some of the students came up to me and they're, you know, talking about, oh man, you know, we were so impressed by how this, you know, stranger knew all these answers. And on the outside, here, you know, here's what I said. I was like, oh, you know, thanks. You know, it was nothing. I'm just really a Bible nerd. But on the inside, you know what I was thinking? I was thinking, oh, I know. I really do know a lot about the Bible. You know, I, I know more about the Bible than you. And you're Bible students. You know, gee, it's, it's, it's a real shame that people don't know their Bibles better today. You know, no wonder the church is in such decline if people only knew the scriptures as well as me. You guys shouldn't be laughing right now. Because <laughs> isn't that just totally, totally gross? I was being a moralist and was boasting in and trusting in my own religiousness. And the result of that is always, always, always stinky self-righteousness. And you know what's even worse than that is that just last week, I was up here telling you, you know, the Bible says you shouldn't be self-righteous. The Bible says you shouldn't be judgmental. This is what Christians can fall into. Moralism always stinks. It always stinks. It always smells bad, which is why in verse 24, Paul tells the Jews that because of their self-righteous moralism, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Or if you wanted to put that in modern terms, you could say God's name is blasphemed among people who don't know Jesus. Your friends, your neighbors, your family, your coworkers, the people that you care most about because you Christians are so stuck up and self-righteous. 
Moralism leads people to blaspheme God. Did you know that Gandhi, the famous Indian independence leader, he was fascinated by Christianity and he never became a Christian. Do you know why? No one but God and Gandhi, of course, you really know that for sure, but it was Gandhi who said this. He said, I love your Christ, but I dislike your Christianity. And when someone pressed him on what it might take to bring India to Christ, he said, I would suggest that all of you Christians live more like Jesus Christ. I want you to think about how our world would be different if Christians, if I, starting with me, if I practiced what I preached. And I'll tell you one thing that I think would happen is that I think there would be more Christians. I think that because we are just a people of such hypocrisy, that we drive people away from the Lord. And you know, sometimes the greatest hypocrites of all are people like me who are ministers or pastors or people in full-time ministry or Christians in leadership. I mean, did you notice that several of the things that Paul describes in this passage all have to do with leading other people? So in verse 19, he says, if you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind or an instructor for the foolish, verse 20. Verse 21, someone who teaches others. So, so, you know, heads up if you're someone who kind of looks at yourself as like an especially like spiritual Christian or if you're someone who's like on the Thrive Leadership Team or someone who is in some kind of ministry position. Because what Paul is saying is that in a way, it's almost easier to fall into moralistic hypocrisy in this case. Why? It's because here, here's what leaders and teachers do. We say, you know, man, I have to lead people. <laughs> I have to lead people. And so, so we put on ourselves all of this pressure to come across as knowing the right things and being the right things and doing the right things and saying the right things. And well, we should. I mean, the Bible says that teachers will be judged more harshly. The Bible says that leaders are those who have to give an account. I mean, by all means, <laughs> teachers and leaders and people who God has put and, and, and positions of humble servant leadership are those who, who should do all that they can to know their stuff. But in putting pressure on, on, on ourselves to come across as more wise, as more holy, as more competent, you know what we do is we fake it. We fake it. And, 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 and there's this, this tendency, if you're a Christian leader, to kind of like inflate yourself to look wiser and holier and more competent than the next guy. So that way people won't know that, that you're just as weak and sinful as the people you're trying to lead. And what that, what that makes you become is just like this really bloated balloon Christian. You're full of hot air, but you don't practice what you preach. And here, here are just a few ways to know if you're a hot air balloon Christian. If you're a hot air balloon Christian, it'll affect the way that you read the Bible. You'll be noticing all the ways that it ought to convict other people, but you'll never let it convict you. It'll affect how you go to church. You'll critique how everything is done when you're sitting there in the worship service. You know, the worship is, is too showy or too old or too modern or too Bethel or too Hillsong or too Rich Mullins or whatever. You know, the preaching is too shallow. You know, the structure is too businesslike, what, you know, whatever. And, and the result is you go away each week and you're unfilled, you're unchanged because you've been too busy criticizing to receive anything that God might have wanted to say to you. I, heard so, I don't know where this comes from. I heard someone say once that the spiritually mature are easily edified. The spiritually mature 
are easily edified. Meaning that, you know, man, even if you're sitting through like the most like horrible sermon, which, you know, you're probably thinking that right now, you know, even if it's just like so bad, like God can still use that and you can still have something to learn. Did you know there's, there's a famous Christian named Charles Spurgeon, David was mentioning him to me earlier tonight. And Charles Spurgeon, you know the way that he became a Christian? This is just the craziest story. So Charles Spurgeon one day, it was like a big snowstorm, you know, kind of like the snowmageddon of his day. And he was going to go to a church on a Sunday morning, but it was all snowed in. And so, you know, he's on foot. He has to go to a different church that just happens to be a little bit closer to where he lives. And so he turns off to this church and it turns out that the pastor who's supposed to be there isn't there because of the snow. And so this lay guy, this, this lay preacher gets up there and starts preaching. And his passage that morning is from the book of Isaiah where it says, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. And, and Charles Spurgeon in his, in his memoirs, his autobiography, he writes that this guy, this preacher, he was so stupid that all he could do was just basically like repeat that verse like over and over and over again for 20 minutes. Look unto me and be ye saved all ye ends of the earth. Just look unto the Savior. And Spurgeon meets Jesus. He meets Jesus that day. And he goes on to become one of the most significant men used of God in that generation. The spiritually mature are easily edified. So man, if, if you are someone who's in leadership, it'll affect how, and, and you're kind of filled with all this hot air trying to be someone that you're not and trying to make other people think that you're better than you are. It affects how you read the Bible. It affects how you go to church. It affects how you carry yourself. You know, you'll always be uptight because you're a mature Christian. You know, you're a Christian leader. People have to respect you. You'll always be condescending because everyone else ought to be coming to you to be fed. You're always going to be exhausted because everyone else is an infant that you have to take care of. It's not as though like God actually might be the Lord of his church and that he might be able to care for his people better than you. And you'll never be authentic because you expect people to open themselves up to you and your wisdom, but you'll never be humble enough to open up yourself to the wisdom that they might have for you. And I know this because I do it. I mean, okay, I'm an oldest child, right? You know, I'm, I'm driven, I'm, I'm perfectionistic. I can't tell you how many times I've been speaking to one of you like out there and, and I'll, just, I'll just feel this need to bloviate, to pontificate, to just say something profound for the sake of sounding profound. <laughs> and it's not because God might want to use me to build you up, but because I want you to like me. I want you to think well of me. I want you to respect me. I want you to think I'm wise. I want me to think I'm wise. But the amazing thing about the gospel is that you don't have to put on a show. You don't have to put on an act. You know, in Romans chapter 12, where Paul says, I urge you, brothers, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. It doesn't say in that verse whom to offer your bodies to. You know, it couldn't be to God the Father because he doesn't have a body. He doesn't need a body. And Jesus came to earth with a body. He still has a body. He doesn't need your body either. But there's one member of the Godhead who came to earth without a body. And that's the Holy Spirit. And if you have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, if you've accepted him as your Lord and as your Savior, if his forgiveness is over your life, then you have the amazing privilege of being a temple of the Holy Spirit. And God, you don't have to work for God. God will work through you. And that's just the most liberating, refreshing news. You know, I'm sorry, I'm going on about all these old preachers, but I just, thanks. <laughs> another old preacher was this guy named D.L. Moody. 
And he was this guy who thought he had to be this, you know, had to be this really spectacular Christian leader, this Christian preacher. And, and, and he said that he felt in that stage of his life like he was a man carrying buckets of heavy water on his shoulders. One day, D.L. Moody had an encounter with the Holy Spirit that was so powerful. He just encountered the love of God so strongly that he had to say, he had to ask the Lord to stay his hand because it was just so overwhelming. And after that, he said, instead of feeling like a man that had buckets of heavy water hanging on my shoulders, I felt like a man who had a river of life coming out of me, and that river just carries me along. There was power for ministry. There was power for service. There was power to follow Jesus. And it does not come from you. And you do not have to fake it. You do not have to strive for it. It's a gift that God gives. And all you have to do is receive it. When we forget this, we end up in Romans 2. And the reason that this chapter is just so terrible and just scary is that it teaches that the besetting sin of Christians is self-righteous judgmental hypocrisy. A hypocrite is someone who says they're one thing and is another. And I think it teaches that even Christian leaders are prone to this. And what this means is that religion, far from being just this sort of get out of hell free card, it actually can be the greatest, most sinister form of idolatry. And the reason it's so sinister is that unlike some of those other pagan idols, it's disguised. I mean, think about it, pagans don't make an attempt to hide their sin very often. You know, many pagans or people who don't come from a religious background claim to be, don't really go around claiming to be living righteous lives. But religious people do. They believe they're righteous because they're religious. And as a result, their religiosity becomes what they, what they trust in. And, you know, isn't it funny that the Bible itself gives the best illustration of this? And it's the story of the two prodigal sons. Not one prodigal son, two prodigal sons. Remember how the younger son in that story comes to the father and he wants the father to give him his share of the estate right then, right there. And since in that culture, the inheritance wasn't given until the father died, the younger son is essentially telling his daddy, saying, dad, I want you to be dead right now because I love your things more than I love you. And miraculously, the father does not slap him. He doesn't like beat him over the head. He actually complies. He gives the younger son what he wants. And just like kind of the stereotypical pagan person of Romans chapter 1, he makes no attempt to hide his sin. He just takes his wealth. He squanders it in wild living until eventually he hits rock bottom. He returns home and his father receives him. But when the elder son, who this whole time has stayed home, when he watches his father receive his brother back into the family, he goes ballistic. He's furious And in an act that would have surely humiliated his father, he stomps off from the party. He forces his father to leave behind all of his guests and to go out and plead with him. And here's what the older son says. He says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours He doesn't call him his brother. He says, this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home. You kill the fattened calf for him. What's his mentality? The older son's mentality is that all these years he's been slaving away for his dad. He's saying, I've obeyed. I've worked hard for you. And because he's worked hard, he thinks the father owes it to him to give him something in return. 
And he charges the father with hypocrisy because he's given the younger son what he didn't deserve. Well, he's refused to give the older son what he thinks he does deserve. But do you notice what's happened? The very thing that the older brother condemns in the father is the very thing he is himself. He is the hypocrite. His charge against the younger brother is that the younger brother is an idolater. He's loved the father's things more than the father. I mean, after all, didn't he squander away all of their dad's wealth? And yet, by his own admission, the older brother does the exact same thing. He wants the father's things just as much as the younger son. He just goes about trying to get it in a different way. He loves the father's things more than the father. Because when it really comes down to it, all the hard work, all the good morals, all the obedience, all the religious pretense to what the father asked of him is all just a power play to get the father to owe him so that he can get the father's things. These two brothers have the exact same heart. They're both idolaters, but one of them tries to hide it and claims he isn't. The, the younger brother in this story is the guy that idolizes what we might call bad things, you know, things that we might liken today to things like partying and drinking and sleeping around. But the older brother idolizes religion. His idols are religious idols, things like hard work, good morals, obedience to his father. And it's crazy because at the end of this story, what's, what's the status quo? The younger brother is the one who's inside the house who has received grace. It's the older brother who's the cliffhanger. We're left not knowing whether he swallows his pride, repents of his righteousness, and goes inside to enjoy the feast. It's left open. Religious people place their confidence and moralism. Religious people don't practice what they preach, and they're so hardened by their own pride that they are their own eternal enemies. And one theologian, a guy named John Gerstner, who I bet Devante has read, <laughs> puts it like this. He says that because of Jesus, the way to God is wide open. There is nothing standing between the sinner and his God. He has immediate and unimpeded access to the Savior. Nothing now stands between the sinner and God, but the sinner's good works. Nothing can keep him from Christ but his delusion that he has good works of his own that can satisfy God. All they need is need. All they must have is nothing. But alas, sinners cannot part with their virtues, quote unquote. They have none that are not imaginary, but they are real to them. So grace becomes unreal. The real grace of God they spurn in order to hold on to the illusory virtues of their own. Their eyes fixed on a mirage, they will not drink real water. They die of thirst with water all about them. They die of thirst with water all about them. And what this guy is describing is pride. When it comes down to it, that is the sin that is most prone to ensnare the religious, including Christians. Pagans need the gospel. Religious people need the gospel. Christians need the gospel. And that takes us to our second point, and actually our final point, which is how do you get it? What is the gospel? <laughs> how do you make it operative in your life? How do religious people get it? And that's what the second part of the passage is going to illustrate. Because in the second part of the passage, from kind of verse 25 down to the end of the chapter here, if you're following along, uh, in this section, Paul brings up something called circumcision. And for Jews, circumcision, that was their badge of religious identity. 
You know, ever since Abraham, you know, way, way back in Old Testament book of Genesis, that kind of stuff, you know, God commands that his people be circumcised. And, and the Jews were proud of this. To them, it was their badge of honor, their badge of identity, that God had singled them out to be the chosen people. And then Paul throws another curveball. <laughs> he tells these guys, you know, look, this outward sign of circumcision, it's worthless unless you completely obey the whole law. In order to put this in contemporary terms, let me, let me offer you another paraphrase here of uh, verses 25 to 27. So uh, here, here's a paraphrase. Paul's basically telling us, you know, so what if you've got a baptism certificate? So what if you were raised in a Christian home? So what if you grew up watching Veggie Tales and Adventures in Odyssey and competed in Bible quizzing? Those things don't make you righteous before God. Don't you realize that the gospel is not about trusting in externals? It's about heart change, a heart change that only God can bring about by his Holy Spirit. This stuff, it's so real. I mean, it so applies. And what he's saying here is that if you're a religious person, the way to get the gospel is to first of all realize that just as circumcision was dead on its own, religion is dead on its own. And what that means is it means taking a hard, honest look at your spiritual life. There are plenty of dead churches that are full of dead Christians that preach the Bible faithfully. You might be surprised to hear me say it, but there are plenty of dead churches full of plenty of dead Christians that preach the Bible faithfully. The reason they're dead is that deep down, these churches boast not in Jesus and the cross, but in being theologically right, in being more orthodox than the liberals, in adhering to doctrinal statements and exacting codes of conduct. Functionally, their trust is in their theological correctness. Or, you know, there are plenty of dead churches full of dead Christians that experience healings and miracles and powerful words of prophecy. And the reason that they're dead is that deep down, these churches boast not in Jesus and in the cross, but in having dramatic spiritual encounters and being more passionate than the conservatives and in hearing directly from God. Their trust, functionally, is in their supernatural experiences. And there are other churches that are dead, full of dead Christians, who sacrificially serve the poor, who comfort the needy, who stand up for the marginalized. And the reason that they're dead is that deep down, these churches boast not in Jesus and the cross, but in their own acts of service and their tireless pursuit of justice and in their identification with the least of these. Their trust is in their charitable good works. Don't be dead. Don't be dead. The first step in getting the gospel is to recognize that your <laughs> kind of going through the motions is simply that. It's simply going through the motions. And it may, may be tonight that, that you know that you've been going through the motions. I'm not saying that you're not a Christian. And I, I'm, I'm saying that Christians get stuck in ruts. Christians get stuck in moralism. And we need to repent of that. And we need to say, Jesus, I've been living my life as though I don't actually need you. Here I am in 21st century Western civilization, America, the most wealthy country on earth, the most prosperous country on earth. I have all my needs taken care of. I have my health. I have my, my job. I have my, my friends. I have my family. I have my life. I have all these things. And you're just this afterthought. And Jesus, I'm living my life as though I don't actually need you. I'm living my life as though, even though I say all this stuff, even though I do all these things, you don't actually make a difference in my life and I'm just going through the motions. Don't be dead. Don't be dead. Repent of that. 
and ask for Jesus to just turn your heart inside out and to bring you back to your first love. And this is hard. I know this is hard because I am in this spot very often. And sometimes you pray this and, and it's like you just struggle with this and struggle with this and struggle with this. And, and, and it just seems like you're in the same rut. And, and, but God is faithful. God is faithful. As you step out in faith, as you look to him, as you walk in repentance and in confession and in forgiveness and, in, and, and all of these things, God is faithful and he'll get you out of the rut. <laughs> but the real crux of the matter, it's more than simply recognizing that, that, that kind of just religiosity can't save, that going through the motions, this is going through the motions. The crux of the matter is the changed heart that Paul speaks of in this chapter. And this is how he concludes. This is how he takes it home. Look again at verses 28 and 29, where he says, A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. The point he's getting at is that a person isn't a Christian if you just go through all the motions, but a person is a Christian if they've received the new heart. The new heart. And the metaphor that he uses in reference to this whole idea of a new heart is the metaphor actually of circumcision. And he's getting this, by the way, from just like way early in the Bible, like even as early as like Deuteronomy. God's telling him, man, you guys know about this like physical circumcision thing, but I'm, gonna, I'm telling you, you guys have to have like a spiritual circumcision. Like you guys have to have your heart changed. And, and the point is, is that, just, you know, don't think about this too hard here, but <laughs> just as circumcision is kind of a cutting off of the flesh, we can't be in relationship with God unless God cuts off from us the hard and stony parts of our hearts. The parts of our hearts that hate God and want to rebel against him. And it's not an accident that Paul chooses this metaphor because in this metaphor, he's pointing to where that heart comes from. You know, to get the gospel, you have to know what the gospel is. And the gospel is not good advice to be followed. It's good news to be believed. It's not something you do. It's something you receive. And the gospel is that 2,000 years ago, Jesus lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. He was the perfect man who never, ever sinned. And he died a cruel death that was befitting only of criminals. And on the cross, he was cut off from the land of the living. He was cut off from the face of his father as he bore our sin for us. And because he did that, and because three days later he rose from the dead, our hearts can be changed. Our hearts can be changed. God can do spiritual surgery and cleanse our hearts of sin, of pride, of self-righteousness, and give us hearts that worship God genuinely for who he is and that don't just go through the motions. If you're a Christian here, that heart is your inheritance. And you can claim that in Jesus' name. A religious person, the person that we've been talking about tonight, is someone who's an idolater, who serves God to get God's things. But a gospel person is a lover who serves God just to get God. They love God not just because he's useful, not just because he gives you all these other trashy things that you think will make you happy. They love God because he's beautiful, because he's worthy of worshiping. A religious person is always unsure of whether or not they're saved because how do you know if you've ever done enough? But if you've seen Jesus and you've heard him cry out from the cross, it is finished, then that is a grounds of confidence that nothing in this world can shake. A grounds of confidence that will outstrip moralism, 
that will outstrip your good works. Someone once said that trying to find your grounds of confidence within yourself is like trying to throw an anchor into the hold of a ship. You know, what's going to happen to that ship that's going to rock around in the water? It's not going to, it's not going to, not going to hold. But when that ship throws its anchor outside of itself, it'll reach all the way down to the rock. It'll grab hold of that rock and it'll be secure. In the book of Hebrews, it says that we have this hope, the hope of what Jesus did as an anchor for the soul. Jesus is a grounds of confidence that nothing, nothing in this world can shake. Let me pray for us. Father, I just thank you that this, this stuff is, uh, the, the, this book of Romans is truth. Um, thank you that in a world of lies um, and of, of just, just cheap, shallow, superficial, um, half-truths and, and, and everything being spun one way or another, that, Lord, this is truth. And that the Bible gives us that truth even if it's just not always nice. But Lord, just thank you that there is a source that actually can tell us our true diagnosis and that can point us to what we really, really need. Um, Jesus, you have given us what we need in yourself, in what you did on the cross and what you did in your resurrection. God, may there be no one here who dies tonight surrounded by springs of water. Lord, you are our oasis. But we just have the blinders of our own pride, our own self-righteousness just fall off so that we would come to that well and drink. Lord, if there's anyone here tonight that just needs to um, get some time alone with you and just repent of some things or to just receive some things from you, Lord, would you just meet them here? And God, would you bring revival to me and to thrive and into our area? Because Lord, we have had the scales of pride fall off so that our eyes are open wide enough to truly see just how good and worthy of our worship you are. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.